Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking batteries and the components within them. A clear-eyed look at the environmental trade-offs and geopolitical rivalries resulting from the EV revolution. Our guest is Henry Sanderson. Henry joins us to talk about his new book, Vault Rush, Winners and Losers in the Race to Go Green. Henry is a former journalist with the Financial Times and now executive editor of Benchmark Minerals Intelligence. And his book is published by One World in 2022 and available in all good bookstores. As always, if you enjoy the content, please do support us by leaving a review on the platform you're listening on. And I hope you enjoy the episode. Henry, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I'm, I'm excited to have the discussion about your book, Vault Rush, the, the winners and losers in the race to go green. Before we get too far, it would be just great to get a bit of a sense of kind of what drove you to write this book. Yeah, so I wrote this book because I moved back from China in, in late 2014 to, to London to work for Financial Times covering commodities. And at the time, it was a pretty bleak situation in the commodity markets. Everything was was falling in price, copper and, and, and oil, etc. And people were talking about the end of the Chinese growth miracle, the commodity heavy uh, China boom, etc. And there's a lot of negative sentiment. So I was just sort of hunting around for a, for a new story and discovered the growth in all these minerals that would be needed for electric vehicle batteries. You know, you started to see at that time electric vehicles start to take off off in China and, and battery production, etc. And it really sort of snowballed from there. And I, you know, and now the the book's being published and it turns out to be good timing. It's now become a very strategic high level issue and one of the top issues for governments for automotive companies. So it's been amazing to sort of see the see the development. But yeah, what what kickstarted me was I mean I'm interested in clean energy and, and China already but just the sort of growth in demand for some of these minerals. It's amazing how much the story has become part of sort of, yeah, as you say, at the governmental level, at the public level, just compared to two years ago when we first had your colleague Simon Moores on just talking about, uh, at that, that time, lithium. Yes. I mean, this is a very clear-eyed book about the components that go into batteries and how the various governments and, and companies have jostled to secure those supply chains and also about the environmental impact of the the lithium-ion battery attempts to solve that and and also some of the choices that we have to make and and accept in this energy transition so so let's go to the start yeah. the book starts off with the battery itself and the irony of it being invented in part within exxon yes and really you know although you know you've i don't want to i don't want to waylay mr edison and his you know the initial electric cars back a uh, 100 years yes. well 120 years ago but really the kind of the story starts around the the arab oil crisis doesn't it really the the response in the 70s to an alternative to the, the internal combustion engine yeah i think it's really interesting going back to that that time because uh, you know as as you know there was this opec oil embargo oil prices shot up there was fears on many fronts at that time for for energy, you know, would there be enough energy? And, and there was really a, a lot of impetus and movement towards renewable energy. You know, famously, the White House had put solar panels on the roof. You know, it was an interesting moment in time and, and, and climate change science was was moving apace. And we had oil companies like Exxon 
wanting to get into renewables, wanting to get into solar, wanting to get into to batteries. So it's one of those moments where, you, you know, like, like with Edison and even earlier time where you, you saw this window of opportunity that unfortunately didn't pan out, but it, for the battery, it laid the seeds of what, what later would, would pan out. And um, it's really interesting to me that Exxon started, helped support the, the earliest sort of experiments with lithium metal, which is extremely volatile, but is one of the best metals in terms of storing energy. So they, they put money into, into doing that. They produced a watch. Um, they were going to, they wanted to produce more, but then oil prices fell at the beginning of the eighties. And I think, you know, Exxon realized it wasn't going to be a multi-billion business. It was never going to make up for, for oil and gas. And mm. you know, then you move into the eighties and, and things completely changed. And then Exxon started to sort of fund more climate denial and, and deny climate change and and shifted tack really so yeah it's a very interesting backstory it was almost a solution in search of a problem at that time as well right because it really in reality was handheld electronic devices notably the ipod and so forth that really spurred and at the same time actually we should say electric bikes as well in in china which really spurred the development of the lithium-ion battery, and you saw Sony eventually commercialise it. And that, that trio, right. including good enough of Oxford University, the book starts off with them getting their Nobel Prize in 2019. Yeah, I just think you know that Nobel Prize is so well deserved. I mean, it has to be one of the critical inventions of of the 20th century. And you're right, like the camcorder. 1991, Sony commercialised it, and it really enabled a lot of the portable technology that was so reliant on today and take completely for, for granted today. And at that time, Japan really took the, the research of, um, that came out of Oxford and really ran with it and managed to, I guess, finalize the final steps in producing a commercialized lithium ion battery. And Japan was the leader in, in production for that time in that period of the 90s. But then you start to see, um, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, China start to, to undercut Japan. And this really is the roots of a lot of the battery giants in China today, like BYD and CATL. Their roots lie in this period when China, especially after it joined the WTO, the labor costs were lower, foreign investors were were keen to invest in in southern China. And it was that brilliant combination that enabled Chinese battery companies to undercut Japanese competitors, uh, purely by low cost labor. Talks to people who visited BYD at that time, and it was sort of rows of people making these batteries. Yeah, that's the fascinating story. I just, I still find it so fascinating, and it's kind of analogous to the episode we've done with Ukash on lithium, and obviously that plays a big part in this. But here you talk about Robin Zhang and, and CATL, yeah. and let's dig into that because that, I mean, that starts with, I mean, he buys—is it the patent from Oxford or buys the patent from Oxford University or the license <laughs> for like a million bucks, which was a hell of a lot of money back then? So there was this weird combination of it, you know, it wasn't just copying, right? They actually did a lot of development as well, but you had this unique confluence of these entrepreneurial private companies seeing the opportunity at the same time the Chinese government, the stars align in terms of we do not want to be importing oil. We don't want to be the recipient yeah. of technology here. We believe is a big opportunity for us to command the new economy that it seems other governments regions aren't seeing. Yeah, it's interesting history. So ATL was founded in in 1999, and you're right. You know, the beginning. I think you know it's incredibly entrepreneurial time in China. These these guys were clever guys coming. You know, 
quitting the the certainty of the state sector you know the iron rice bowl um you know as it was known and and going out on their own in in southern china and you're right at the beginning i i guess these guys at atr didn't really know how to make lithium-ion batteries or, or what they were doing but they to their credit they worked it out and you know only a few years later atr batteries were in portable dvd players bluetooth headsets etc and then i think they they supplied apple but you're right when when evs came along a bit later uh, china had a lot of the foundations to to really build out a supply chain for electric vehicles and and once you know if you look at the financial crisis later on both china and the us wanted to stimulate green technology as a way of stimulating economic growth and you know unfortunately a lot of the companies in the us went went bankrupt but china plowed on and they had a lot of these these companies in the in the supply chain electronic supply chain that can move with EVs and then you had CATL was spun out of ATL in 2011 so around this time and then in 2015 um, the Chinese government effectively banned foreign battery companies Korean and, and Japanese from from the market for, for EVs and that really kick-started CATL's growth because auto companies just had to go there right and it's now the biggest battery company in the world by you know but quite a big margin so it's an incredible incredible story so and therein lies sort of the the complexity of this right because suddenly china dominates the the processing of the chemicals that go into the battery and the battery creation itself and almost there's this quote in the book about you know will the west ever catch up and it's you know this this idea that bmw now have no choice they missed it early on and now they have to go to battery makers in china yeah. for the batteries and 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 here we get to sort of the heart of the book which is these environmental trade-offs actually now there's very little insight into how these batteries are made and the environmental damage as a result because let's turn to you've got these four big components yeah. you know lithium cobalt nickel and copper that go into the into the into the batteries we've talked in a previous episode like i mentioned about sort of the the rush to secure lithium deposits in Australia, in Chile, and so forth, as the, these Chinese chemical manufacturers realized that would be a, a bottleneck that they faced. But you have this kind of terrifying moment, sort of, you know, straight out of sort of Orwell or, you know, T.S. Eliot of, of actually, as in Xinyu, where, you know, the Gongfang um, lithium processing plant. And can you just tell us about that? Because I, I think that's really important for, for us to hear about, you know, how much energy yeah. it takes to make this stuff and the consequences. Part of the reason I wrote this book is to say, uh, let's open our eyes, let's not be naive about these supply chains. I'm not saying that EVs are worse than um, in gasoline or petrol cars. And, and, you know, we should preface this by saying nothing compares to, to fossil fuels, right, which you just burn off. And also they're way less efficient in terms of burning petrol gasoline in your car. Um, it's much, much less efficient than using electricity. So it's much better than fossil fuels. But I'm just pointing out that if we're going to build this supply chain at scale to convert all these cars to electric and, and trucks, etc., we're going to have to build a clean supply chain. And step one is understanding what's out there. Um, yeah. So exactly, you're exactly right. Like there are lots of sort of areas I think people wouldn't wouldn't understand when they're when they're driving their EV, which is the amount of energy and, and especially at the moment, coal-fired energy that's needed in this supply chain. I mean, right now, Australia is the biggest lithium producer, but all that lithium gets sent to China to be processed. And, and much of it's done in plants with, with coal-fired power or, or natural gas power. And then if you talk about graphite, that's even worse. That's um, A lot of it's 
produced in Inner Mongolia with coal-fired power. It's incredibly energy intense. Um, and then you look at nickel in Indonesia. You know, the nickel coming out of the ground is it doesn't have a lot of nickel in the rock, right? So a huge amount, less than 1%, I think. So a huge amount of waste rock and huge amount of energy needed to process it into something that ends up in your battery. So, and I, and I want to go through them one by one because I think it is crucial. Let's, and I, we're going to end up at this, I think, at the end of the conversation. But just to your point about the, and this is really at the heart of the book because, and I also, and I know I keep, there's sort of a bingo game going on when I say this, but I do think there's a crucial distinction between greenhouse gas emissions and climate change and we've done an episode on that you know just the, the enormity the world the global consequence of a society of climate change yeah. versus environmental degradation and when you put the ev up there it's certainly solving or is better than the internal combustion engine for climate change arguably because of the nature of the supply chain it's probably worse at the moment for environmental and social impacts which is quite a a big statement, but at least there's a question mark on that side of the ledger. Now, I think those two things get quite conflated. And I think if you look at the real, you know, the world is currently realizing that we need to solve for climate change, and that will mean environmental trade-offs. It certainly doesn't mean that we should accept supply chains, as we're about to discover, that involve child labor, huge environmental disruption, huge social impacts, genetic deformity, you know, is a pretty dark story. But go, going back to lithium and, and car, uh, graphite as well, but lithium, you're, you're heating this ore concentrate to a thousand degrees C yeah. using using coal. The, the couple of things to point out, which is um, where the beginning stages of this revolution. So by efforts by me and others, many others, to point out some of these issues, you know, the industry is really changing and moving very quickly because the automakers, the end customers, they've set big goals for carbon neutral vehicles, for reaching net zero. And then at the end of the day, the consumer cares much more when it's a green product, you know, how it's made and then, then, then other products. And also there's a massive crackdown against greenwashing now, right? And lawsuits, et cetera. So that's getting much tougher to do. So for all these reasons, things are moving very quickly. And it's wrong to think that China is somehow stuck in the old ways of doing things with coal-fired power. They, they in some senses, will move quicker than the West to, to clean energy and, and hydropower, which is already happening in China. You see a lot of these industries moving to areas of, of hydropower. So change is is happening but for some sectors it will be quite difficult yeah yeah okay so so we, again we've sort of covered lithium and, and 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 as you say like there is this pressure from consumers that only really works when these challenge these, these issues are highlighted so and that, i think that story is prominent in cobalt which is a large sector of the book maybe you can start us off with the somewhat hilarious culture clash between vw and uh, and this handful of world cobalt traders turning up for a meeting yeah so it's interesting because i think um at the beginning of this transition you know automakers had had a lot to learn about this supply chain there's one thing just ordering it from from china or chinese companies but as they drew up these very ambitious plans to to launch x million models by 2025 or go big into electric vehicles, they realized they needed to understand the supply chain and, and in the best case, control it and, you know, have some sort of vertical integration. But it's just very different to, I think, the supply chain they were used to, you know, where 
you can just order, a, a, you know, an aluminium producer to produce more or a steel to produce more. Um, you know, when you're talking about mines, you've got the cost curve, as I'm sure you know, and and then you have the geopolitics and then some of the issues around, you know, as we talked about in cobalt, child labor and allegations of corruption. So I think really, you know, at, the, at this point in time that I talk about at the beginning, companies like VW probably didn't, didn't uh, know enough about the market. And they also thought being big players that mining companies or traders would just come running to them and be willing to sell however much they wanted, you know, their, their VW, right, this kind of this kind of attitude from from automakers. I mean, I think that's, it's all changed now, but it was an interesting sort of transition. And in Cobalt, at the same time, you had this very landmark amnesty report that came out a few years ago that really revealed, you know, the extent of child labor, the conditions on the ground in the, in the DRC. And I think the initial reaction was, oh, my God, we should just quit DRC altogether. We want nothing to do with the Congo. Probably the worst nightmare was for a lot of these car companies who were just, you know, just going electric to to wake up and be linked to to some of this stuff. So they did try to disengage. And then I think they got pushed back. And, and the answer is not just to run away, it's to, to try and engage. You know, but what, what's so interesting about this is that I think for so many years, this, this cobalt's obviously come into electronic supply chain. It feels like no one's really cared that much. But again, because it's a green product, it, in a way, it's a catalyst for change. You know, that's what that's what makes me hopeful, and and that's what's happened, right? Uh, there was pushback, and we've seen automakers start to engage with the DRC, try to come up with some sort of help for for you know child miners for for for, for local miners. Um, we're nowhere near a, a solution. It's a very complicated thing to to solve, but there's been better engagement and then geopolitically you've seen um, the US really now re-engaging with the DRC realizing <laughs> the situation that you know Chinese companies control a lot of this cobalt we've seen high level visits from the US to DRC so yeah both geopolitically and in the industry there's a, there's a lot more engagement so you know there is there is this dark side there are these issues but i don't think the answer is just to to walk away right the DRC should and and should stand to benefit from from this clean energy uh transition it's got abundant hydropower it's got cobalt it's got lithium there so yeah that's that's the way it's yeah so it's not for the faint-hearted right you set up in the book sort of this contrast between glencore and, and and you know all of the troubles that they face with various connections and so forth and and actually sort of the they're, they're sort of euphemistically referred to as artisanal miners yeah. And actually, as the book says, 40% of them are children. There's just incredible health problems, yeah. terrible environment, right? And and actually, you've got a lot of those artisanal miners are selling to local traders who are then selling to Chinese companies. And by the time this cobalt gets to the, the, the processes in China, it's all mixed together. Yes. Then this amnesty report comes out. And you kind of have a couple of interesting moments, don't you? You have Glencore's facing its issues with the DOJ and yes. Ivan Glazenberg very pointedly says to the US, look, hey, if you force us out of Mutanda, out of the DRC, the Chinese will buy it. And what does that mean for you? Yes. Yes. And at the same time, you have this amnesty report coming out, which starts the process of change. But reading the book, this is still, you know, it, it's not like everything's been solved. Yeah, so exactly right. You have this interesting combination of things where the amnesty report not only you know, did it lead to some disengagement? What happened was the automakers went to the industrial miners like Glencore to get the cobalt because they 
they thought, well, you know, at least that's, um, you know, behind secured premises. You know, if you go to the Glencore Mines and DRC is behind high fences, a lot of security, you know, at least Matanda. So that's that was one shift that, that happened. They wanted to buy from, from Glencore and other industrial miners. But then, you know, Glencore at the time, was facing all these questions about its its history. It was it was under investigation, as you say, by DOJ and others, and its connections to to Dan Gertler, an Israeli businessman who was quite close to President Kabila. So yeah, there was this very sort of uneasy situation where you know they didn't want child mining, they didn't want, as you say, artisanal mining. The industrial miners were better, but then they also had this allegations of corruption. So sort of uneasy uh, situation. And then also, as you say, Glencore is the biggest cobalt producer, it's a Western company. So that's a huge strategic coup for the West. And I think you're right, that's what that's what Glencore said to the to the US officials as well. And it's an interesting set of situations. And in that chapter ends with essentially Mr. Glazenberg's, you know, the last coup of the career of securing the Tesla contract, right? Because ultimately Tesla's got nowhere else to go that's going to be acceptable to its shareholders and they're off to the races. I found it very interesting to to sort of recount the story of Glencore moving from Ivan Glazenberg, someone who started in coal, right? And and moving from from being a big uh, coal producer to being a company I think that was quite agnostic about global ideals and, and, and global sort of climate ambition i think the history of the company was more sort of you know its history wasn't really worked around sanctions etc under, under mark rich it wasn't really a company you would say that was you know keen on big global ideals and then shifting to the awareness that this this clean energy transition was a huge huge business opportunity and glencore happened to have the right minerals right with cobalt with with nickel so they had to uh you know, play this slightly uneasy dance where they, they kept onto the coal. They had to pledge that they wouldn't invest more in coal while at the same time signing uh, signing deals with, with Tesla, et cetera, in the, uh, the battery supply chain. And I think you're right. One of the final moves of, of his career was to set Glencore up in, in that fashion where they pledged to not invest more in coal and they also got Tesla as a key customer. So it was really an interesting part of the story. And yet at the same time, they still at that time we're still paying down girl uh, royalties from from the mines in the drc so it's uh yeah it's a really i guess an example of some of the complications in the supply chain that well, i think uh, and yeah. the fact that the car manufacturers have nowhere else to go right in some senses yeah. because that and that story is probably most prominent in nickel where you yeah. kind of start the chapter in papua new guinea and basically the poisoning of the waterways and the coastal environs as a result of mining with with I probably won't get it right, but this is the hexavalent chromium, which is the stuff Aaron Brockovich, for those who've yeah. seen the movie, fought against, because that's how nickel is mined. And you kind of, again, you have this interplay of geopolitics and geostrategy, where Ching Shan essentially corner the, the Indonesian export market. And suddenly, I think there's quite a, a telling moment when basically the, the car manufacturers go to kind of Glencore, BHP, Billiton and Vale and say, this is how much nickel we want. And they basically say, can't do it. Sorry. 
Yeah, so what's happening in Indonesia is is fascinating. I mean, first, just on Papua New Guinea, again, it was the Chinese that I think that, you know, PNG made a request to the Chinese to come in in, in 2004 to develop the Ramu nickel project and, uh, and you know, develop that, that refinery there. So, but there have been problems there. And then in Indonesia, you're right, they banned export of, of raw nickel and they wanted to attract more processing in Indonesia. And the Chinese really took up this invitation with great gusto and invested billions in Indonesia and built these big industrial parks like Morowali Industrial Park, you know, which has its own runway and hotel and and all these massive processing facilities, you know, mainly producing nickel pig iron for, for stainless steel. Obviously, nickel's used in, in stainless steel, but also looking to to get into the battery sector. And we've seen a huge amount of Chinese investment in processing plants in Indonesia for the, for the battery sector. So what this really means is that if you add in the complications from the Russian war in Ukraine and, and the fact that Russian nickel is probably not acceptable to a lot of people, there's going to be more reliance from the West on nickel from Indonesia. But this, almost all of it is operated by, by Chinese companies. So you're right, we've seen yet again automakers not working this out until a bit too late and now they're having to go to indonesia and sign deals with these chinese companies and this the problem with this is you know not only the carbon intensity of of the processing in indonesia because indonesia's grid is mostly coal but you've got the environmental impacts of mining in this highly biodiverse area the impacts on on the land and and the water and people's indigenous people's lives you know, so but th- there is no choice for a lot of these Western automakers now. So it's uh, mm. it's a really tough uh, situation. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector, with six locations across Asia, Europe, and the Americas, and over fifty consultants. To find out more, go to our website hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. Ching Han, you say like very few people have heard of them, but they're, you know, this is a $30 billion revenue company. It's like the same as Tesla, right? These are enormous, powerful organizations that have such a controlling stance in the EV supply chain. And as you say, Norilsk, Norilsk is now out of the picture with Russian sanctions. Yeah, I think Qingchen is one of those companies I wanted to profile in the book, which is that you know people just unaware of the billions that have been made in, in in China in certain sections of unsexy industry, I guess you know. And the West has been been so focused on you know Facebook and and the tech companies, and sure that you know that all counts to to GDP as well. But I think what's happened in China is you know a lot of these this heavy industry, um, this manufacturing, the hard stuff, they've really come to dominate it. And they've just made fortunes, you know, billions. And these are companies that people aren't, aren't aware of. And if you look at the rich list in, in China, loads of billionaires are from the clean energy sector, you know, from solar to batteries. This is an example of the huge amount of wealth that the West hasn't generated and, and, and got the jobs from either. So yeah, it's uh, Qingshan is a fascinating company that you know, also is making moves into battery production as well as the nickel. So it's definitely one of those hidden players that I like to write about in this book. Mm. 
It's fascinating, and I, you, you can kind of sense the the study if we make it this far. You know, in a hundred years, when when people are contrasting I mean, the long range plan that the Chinese the Communist Party had is paid off, right? It's it's they're starting to see real dividends as a result of it, whereas public companies focused on shareholder returns and even you know western democracies where you've got such shorter term limits haven't had the same clarity of purpose and it's interesting glencore's role in this not to get too philosophical but of course glencore was a private company when, when ivan glazenberg was acquiring its mining operations and it's you know and, and had sort of quite a clear goal about a lot of i feel of where they were headed he says really early on like in the in the two 2010s, I think at the the FT commodity conference talks about how nickel and many of these battery metals are going to be absolutely crucial for the world economy, and that the West should be investing in it. So, so, so that's the thing. Yeah, Glencore, you know, was obviously aware of what was going on, and yeah, he, you know, he made this warning that the West should invest. But I think what's happened is, I think talking about the very beginning when when I talked about the commodity crash that started my career in commodities, this had a big impact, I think, on the Western mining companies because they'd made a lot of possibly overpriced investments during the commodity boom. And then investors after that crashed, you know, and these are big markets, copper, iron ore, etc. Um, during that period after commodity boom ended, investors wanted mining companies to be much more cautious and just to focus on, on dividends um, mm. and giving money back to investors. And iron ore is obviously a huge cash cow for for a lot of these guys so just a time when western mining companies should have been investing in battery metals they weren't and uh, the chinese were and i think if you look at a lot of the deals that's you know that's the good deals that's that's a time when it when it happened you know tianqi lithium buying into green bushes which is the largest lithium mine in the world in australia you know that just went ahead at a time when no one was was focused on this if you look at china molly buying uh, the 10k you know, mine in the DRC that happened at a time when copper prices were falling and Freeport had to exit, etc. So it was a time when Western mining companies weren't thinking about acquisitions, they weren't thinking about growth capital. And I think it was was a real mistake not to have the foresight to see that while the industrial demand from the old economy sectors was declining, you had this clean energy sector that was going to be, be huge. Mm. It goes back further, right, with Exxon. I mean, not that I want to sort of tear down Western capitalist structures, but I'm just, you know, it's it's just a fascinating comment, right, that this pressure for immediate returns is having an impact on on these organizations being able to invest long range, right? Because I don't I don't think for a minute it wasn't recognized by some of these organizations about the opportunity and what battery metals would be. It was just as you say, the other pressures dominated but i guess that's a yeah that's an aside it's, it's, it's interesting and also it's it's i think it is still is small markets compared to copper and iron ore. i think that's always been the problem which is this doesn't move the needle for a lot of these big western mining companies mm. but then you know but then again we've seen rio tinto you know now start to get into battery metals in in what i think is, is a big way and, and buying a project in a lithium project in argentina earlier this year so yeah, we're starting to see a bit of change there. And I think I think that's right. I mean, I think they may be smaller markets than, than iron ore and copper, but the growth potential is huge, right? The growth potential is really massive. Yeah. And then, you know, you have a big section again on copper in the book and yeah, and I guess that's a, a bit of a familiar story to our to our audience. You sort of move yes. the, the, the sort of the latter half of the book is what has been 
the response because obviously there's a recognition that these batteries don't come with the at least the green credentials from an environmental standpoint that consumers are demanding and there's growing awareness of the challenge with this and you know this sort of this idea of what are what are potential solutions that don't involve such biodiversity loss such human and social impact and you kind of start off with north vault which i find a really fascinating story right and they're able to this is this scandinavian yeah. manufacturer that's making it with 60 percent less co2 than than china and trying to source minerals and metals from other locations that are, are more environmentally conscious with varying success especially with russian sanctions maybe you can just give us an intro into into to north vault Yes, I think I, I picked them because I do think it is a really fascinating story of, of Europe essentially saying, holy shit, you know, we're going to be completely reliant on China in a really sort of strategically vulnerable way. And, and Northvolt Entrepreneurial seeing the opportunity for, for, for a European battery factory and early on making a serious move to make it happen. And I think it is an amazing story of, you know, they've raised a lot of capital, they've, they've built this factory in the north of Sweden where there's there's lots of hydropower and they started production earlier this year now the question is going to be you know battery manufacturing is is a scale business you've got to produce massive amounts millions of cells a day all at good quality with not too much loss of of yield etc so the question is going to be how good are their cells going to be but I do think it's just a impressive story to to get that up and running and there are other challenges Britain we have British Vault one in France as well. So yes, this is this is an example of Europe in, and in a way taking some of the industrial policy lessons of, of China and using that in Europe, right, in terms of, you know, the EU did, with, they launched more stricter CO2 emissions for, for, for petrol and, and diesel vehicles, which came into force in, I think it's 2020, 2021, which really helped boost sales of EVs because that was only, one of the only ways to meet these meet these targets. So that's a classic example of, policy supporting growth in in EV market and the EU helped support North Vault as well and then you have private capital like Goldman Sachs coming in and so it's, yeah it was a successful example of Europe fighting back but now the question is that's just this is one one battery factory right we need to we need to build lots more and Volkswagen said it wants six battery gigafactories that it operates on its own or with partners in Europe so a lot of growth to come and and companies now like VW are going into making their own batteries and, and building this own supply chain so it's a really interesting development yeah spurred by Tesla but it kind of comes yeah. full circle back to this nimbyism right in the sense that the ultimately if you you know not only did China obviously see the opportunity but in reality as we covered on a, a previous episode there was a willingness of western companies society to outsource the pollution of heavy manufacturing to asia and and this idea that was kind of where the where where it became unstuck which was actually battery manufacturing is really is actually just is is high tech it requires a lot of r&d and really that's what china captured but it was essentially a story of also outsourcing the pollution. And as you try and bring yes. these supply chains back, you're already seeing here in the United States, you know, people up in arms in Utah and Colorado over various rare earth mineral mining yes. try to be started back up. You've, you talk in the book about sort of a, a renaissance in Cornwall. And it's, yes. you know, will, will people accept the environmental degradation in order to solve greenhouse gas emissions? 
Well, this is the interesting thing. When you localize, this is what's so fascinating, is when you localize, you have to do it in a much more sustainable way, right? And you're right, we've just offshored so many parts of our industry to other countries. We've offshored the awareness, the mentality, the realization of the energy intense nature of all these processes, the use of fossil fuels. So it's a good lesson because when you localize now, you have to do it in a green and sustainable way. And what's going to happen is that drives innovation, right? And that's that's exactly what we need. We need innovation to make these processes cleaner. So the localization drive is a really positive move. But the, the question is that you're talking about localizing uh, for political reasons, for geopolitical reasons, is what's going to be the, the cost difference compared to China? China's had many years of developing the know-how in, in a lot of these processes. What's going to be the cost difference? Will automakers pay a premium to support localized businesses you know the whole reason we had this complicated globalized supply chain was because of costs right so you're bringing it back you know people are going to pay more for are they going to pay more for sustainability for more environmentally friendly mining and processing that's a sort of big question in in my mind and i think it's interesting because biden signed this inflation reduction act which obviously gives tax credits to 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 automakers the evs if they fulfill some of the requirements, one of them is, you know, the value of the critical minerals in the battery, a certain percentage starting at 40% has to be mined or processed in uh, free trade agreement countries or, or North America. So you're going to get some credit for, for doing that. So maybe you'll be willing to pay a premium for some of this localized supply. That's a sort of interesting question in my mind. But what, what Europe and the, and the West lacks is the know-how, the technical know-how, that's going to be a challenge. And and you've seen North Vaults obviously hired experts from, from Korea and Japan and elsewhere. And I think what we're what we're seeing in the US is Korean companies are gonna help save the US's bacon, right? So <laughs> they're gonna help build this supply chain in, in North America in a really big way. They've got the know-how and and the experience. And it's an example of geopolitical tension spurring competition, right? Which which can be a good thing, right? Spurring catching up. Yeah, and also, you know, we shouldn't cast China as the as the the antagonists in this or the bad guys, right? Because they also face their own environmental pressures, and as you say, Precisely. you know, are tackling these issues because ultimately the spur way back in the day for China to develop the seeing the opportunity around EVs was smogs in Beijing. Yeah, no, I lived through, you know, that's that's a really interesting thing that, um, you know, I lived in Beijing at this time of awful air pollution, and I'll never forget it. It's such a vivid memory to me, even now, the set, it was so apocalyptic, you know, you'd wake up, the first thing I'd do on my phone was check the air pollution number, you'd wear a mask, pre-COVID, you know, it did seem pretty, pretty bleak to be doing that, you'd have an air filter at home. And at the time, there was a real risk of, of social unrest because air pollution affects rich and poor alike, obviously, and, and the, the growing middle class who are becoming a key constituency in China. And I think there was a real risk of, of unrest. So you're right, EV has really helped to reduce some of those critical impacts. And, and the Communist Party fears social unrest more than anything else. So that was a sort of very interesting development at the time. Hmm. So when you're at your next dinner party in Houston, and a seasoned oil veteran says to you, well, I think EVs are worse for the environment than, than any gas car out there. After go having gone on this journey, what's the sort of the answer to that question? Definitely not. EVs, are, you know, EVs, all the studies show that EVs are, are better than, than petrol and gasoline cars. 
and even as I say, the the carbon involved in some of the production of the, of the battery is going to come down. You know, with with the impetuses that that I've talked about, and then also grids are, are going to get cleaner. They have to get cleaner, right? That's what we have to do to to solve climate change. So we're only at the beginning of this EV revolution, and the opportunities for improvement are massive. Whereas with with petrol, um, gasoline cars, you know, they've had They've had decades. Yes, they yes they've improved, but um, now I think they've reached their limit. Right? Sure, there might be further innovations, but I think the tipping points have been passed, and EV sales are accelerating. And also, being an EV owner, that's what I wanted to do for writing this book. So I wanted to have an EV, and when I when I got uh, an EV, you know, you really realised how powerful the insight is that they're not only a more environmentally friendly product but they're a better product i can't stress that yeah they, they, they avoid going to the uh the gas station twice a week right yeah, it's, is, it's just a better it's just a better experience to drive it's it's a better product and you're already yeah. seeing um that in the mileage data another interesting thing is that miles you know driven in the uk average miles driven you know was falling quite a lot since 2000 but <laughs> with evs people drive drive more drive further mm-hmm. It's such a such a a good experience. So, yeah, you do you do have this issue of when you get an EV, you use it more. No doubt about it. But the answer to that that seasoned oil veteran is, I think I get this right when saying you know they are absolutely better from a greenhouse gas emissions climate change standpoint. The industry, from an environmental standpoint, though, there are these significant problems, and I think you'd be quite right if you were a work for Merce drilling or you know whoever it might be to say actually well the environmental impact of us extracting and processing the oil is less from a pollution degradation standpoint and that's just the journey that the ev supply chain now needs to go on because it can't be at any cost right it, we, you know the the pressure from yeah. consumers now that these evs are very firmly in the retail world it's going to demand that change it's not at the price of losing rainforest in Indonesia and child labor in the DRC. I mean, I just think, you know, it doesn't compare to fossil fuels really, because if, let's not forget that they're, they're causing this, this, this climate change, right? I mean, I think we're all feeling it this year, you know, with the, the droughts, the extreme weather, the heat. So there's just, there's no, there's no comparison. Really. Yeah. Between those two evils, there's no comparison, right? One is, Climate change is an absolute existential threat. Yeah, precisely. So, so, so that's the issue. But if you're talking about EVs needing to clean up, for sure, like every additional ton of CO two you emit is a, is a ton that we don't want in the atmosphere, right? So we've got to clean up the EV supply chain because it's about scale. And if you think about the scale needed to to really make a, it's how to say it, like the scale needed to make a dent on um, CO two emissions, EVs need to scale up massively. But um, once you get that scale, you you risk also producing unwanted in, uh, incremental CO two from the supply chain. So you've got to you've got to reduce the impacts of, of of the supply chain. But you know, a big a big thing is to keep in mind is that this is probably um, a decade, a two decade, you know, a decade and a half problem. You've got this incremental, exponential, sorry, increase in demand. The supply chain struggling to keep up. But once you get to 2035, 2040, we're going to see more recycling, more circular economy, grids will be greener. In that sense, you've got to remember these minerals can be recycled. It's not like fossil fuels where you just burn them off, right? So 
that's important to keep in mind. Um, geopolitically, yeah, sure, we're, we may be hostage to China in the near term for a lot of these technologies, but it's not like fossil fuels where our economies would just shut down you know, straight away. I mean, look what's happening with Russian gas at the moment, right? So yeah. it's not as extreme as that. So geopolitically, this is better, right? Countries can be more secure if they move down this route. Yeah, and, and well said. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating book. It's absolutely a fascinating read. Certainly for, I know for our audience, every day at the leadership level, it's how can they participate, whether, you know, in this, in the, in the EV revolution from a battery metal yeah. standpoint, from a power standpoint. Yeah, it's a, I really enjoyed it. And I would recommend everyone to go out and, and get it. And it's available in, in all good bookstores, Vault Rush, The Winners and Losers in the Race to Go Green by Henry Sanderson. Thanks so much. Really appreciate the time. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.